It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by two guests. Dan Koppel is an award-winning writer and the former executive editor at the New York Times' Wirecutter, and his cousin, Dr. Robert Mayer, has been an emergency room doctor for over 25 years. He was at the Bronx Montefiore Center, which was at the epicenter of the COVID-19 crisis. The two of them have written a book together, Every Minute is a Day about the experiences that Dr. Robert Meyer had. Dan and Dr. Meyer, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, thanks for having us. We have technical yes, difficulties sorry, because we need, no worries, the... we, need, we need infrastructure. So there's a couple of different things going on this morning. Um, sometimes the internet does not work terrific uh, well. <clears throat> and, and so we struggle against that, but we are so happy to have you here. And I'm so um, interested in this particular book because it feels to me like this needs to be out there in the world where I don't I don't feel like even as much as I consume in COVID news um, that I really get a sense of what it's like to be in, on the front lines of this pandemic. Um, I, I, I want to start with Dan. How did this project come about? Did you call um, your cousin and say, I want to write down your your experience, you know, as as somebody who um, is an award-winning writer, I feel like that's going to be your instinct. Is that what happened? How did, how did this project first, um, you know, get get sparked? Yeah, I, 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 ho- I hope I'm not as mercenary as all that. I'm, I, you know, when, when in early March of last year, um, you know, I, I live up in Maine, and um, it was more that I was concerned about Rob. I, you know, I'd been reading the headlines, hearing about COVID happening, and I, I was worried about him. So I sent him a note saying, how are you doing? And uh, he basically said, it's pretty bad. And I said, how bad? And he said, on a scale of one to 10, it's 100. And, and so I encouraged him, again, not, not as a journalist, but just as a cousin to, to vent. I said, hey, if you need someone to talk to, if you want to send me text messages, um, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if, if you ever just need to talk to anyone, just, you know, I'm available um, to you. Um, and and uh, and he, he took advantage of that. And after a few days, you know, suddenly then my sort of uh, journalist instinct kicked in and I was like, wow, this is something that people don't know about and, and probably should know about. And, and so I, I very delicately said to Rob, you know, I, I think that there's something here. Um, there's might be a book in it. Do you think I could compile some of these and, and show it to some people? And, and maybe we could feel them out and see if actually this is something we could bring to the public. And Rob agreed. And so we went from there. Dr. Meyer, do you, do you, when you say, when you told your cousin on a scale of one to 10, it was a hundred. What is a hundred on a scale of 10 look like? Because I, I feel like I've seen, I mean, I've been, I've been in, um, in hospitals, I've been in ICUs, So I have some sense of what it's like normally. Right. Which is um, a lot is going on in an ICU on a regular day. People are having heart attacks and strokes and people are having all kinds of normal um, everyday um, health issues. 
um, that are emergencies. And so it's tense anyway. But during COVID, it feels like almost like a war zone. It, but that's what is in my head. Is that what it's actually like? Yeah, that that's a, a very, very fair analogy. And, and it actually, if I'm not mistaken, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong. At, at times, I think you said you felt like a war correspondent. Um, and and just piggybacking on the, the previous question, the the way the, the book went down was was really exactly as Dan described. It was initially just as a, a catharsis for me under the condition that he didn't tell my family what we what I was experiencing in the emergency department, which, as you said, was a war zone. And as the title uh, indicates, um, the, the title is really meant to describe that in literally one minute or certainly in one hour, we saw and did as much as we typically did in a week. And uh, I had the occasion to talk to a guy in the neighborhood yesterday who told me that he brought his son to a local emergency department. And he said, oh, I can't believe how busy it was. And in my head, I just literally chuckled and said, <laughs> nobody will never know what a busy emergency. Mm-hmm. I don't know what a busy emergency department is ever compared to what I saw in the spring of 2020. It was uh, it was chaos. I can't even imagine what you've been through, which is why I think this book is so important because people need to understand what, and it was really tough in the beginning because we would, you know, Zerlina and I talked to folks around the country all of the time and, and what was happening in the Bronx, what was happening in, in Brooklyn and Queens was not like what was happening in the rest of the country for several months there. What was, what was the experience like being at the epicenter and now watching the epicenter sort of spread out into other places while New York is sort of doing, it's doing, you know, considerably better than, than we were, than we were earlier on in the pandemic. I can't tell you how many phone calls I got from people that I've known for many years. I've been doing this a long time. So my, my tentacles are all over the uh, country (laughs) and I was getting routinely, I was getting phone calls, Rob, what, what's going on over there? We're sitting here with our feet up, nothing's going on. And it was, it was not unique to, to Montefiore by any means. I mean, as you said, Queens, were, they were getting their teeth kicked in as well. And it was, uh, it was unusual that we were the epicenter while the rest of the country was just sitting back and watching. Uh, and hopefully gaining from our experience and uh they i think did um take their their lumps and bumps as the season went on though yeah i mean one of the things that i think people don't understand necessarily is even sort of the logistics of it so doctor can you explain like we hear stories about people talking to their family members on iPads or not being able to, you, you can only really, only really go in one at a time um, into the emergency room or into the hospital um, to see your family members. So it's just really different than any other experience where you would have a hospital stay with normal visiting hours and, and things of that nature. But then you also have sort of the, the fact that you have to isolate COVID patients and protect them from the staff um and you know other patients in the hospital um so that sort of like isolates them even more i mean what does that look like when you're in the hospital i've seen you know a variety of 
B-roll and video and, you know, footage of, you know, people sort of in like the outbreak movie plastic situation cubes. Um, is that what it looks like in, in most emergency rooms or is it even more chaotic than that? Yeah, I, I, I can't I can't speak for other emergency departments, uh, but uh, one of the one of the things that we do talk about a lot in, in the book is the fact that uh, and our our dedication is to, to those that that died alone. Uh, it was a very, very different uh, dynamic in the emergency department and certainly in the rest of the hospital where we just for pragmatic reasons, both by space and controlling the spread of the disease, we had to keep everybody outside the hospital, even those that came for evaluation. Uh, we had makeshift tents to keep the not sick out. Uh, and they got a temperature check, a pulse ox, and were, uh, if okay, sent home uh, with strict return to hospital uh, advisements. The visiting policy was ripping our hearts out uh, because these people were sick. And uh, we had just scores of people standing outside the emergency department, you know, begging to come in, uh, hmm. wanting to hold their loved one's hands and it just could physically not be done. There was not enough physical space. It was absolutely impossible and dangerous for all involved to even remotely consider allowing anybody in. And our dedication uh, speaks for itself that we, as healthcare providers, it was incredible to see how everybody, no matter if they were the person stocking the shelves or cleaning the floors or answering the phone, they found a moment to hold somebody's hand Mm. and just be there for them. Wow. I wasn't expecting to tear up this quickly this morning. Um, Dan, it must have been, I mean, you're getting these texts and voice memos from your cousin. You're, you, you have a frontline understanding of what's happening in a way that I'm sure, given your background, you know that the country doesn't have. What was the process of turning this story, turning your cousin's story into a book that speaks to the, the basically the universality of, of emergency room experiences? How are you taking care of yourself while you've been waiting through all of this to make? You know, it, you know, I, I was up here a couple hundred miles to the north and, and Maine is isolated. It's, it's very and, you know, was hit. You know, you know, it was one of the states that was the least hard hits. It seemed very surreal. Um, you know, one point I got sick, not with not with COVID, and I had to go to the emergency room. And I, I had been down to New York a couple of times and seen, you know, the height of the chaos and the sadness. And and I went into the local ER, and nothing was happening, and it just stunned me. But but it was my job to help Rob and to take care of him in a way. And so I, I sort of put on my sounding board hat, my journalist hat, and, 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 and soldiered on. Um, not to say I didn't feel the emotion, didn't worry about him, didn't worry. You know, I have, I have two young kids um, who were out of school at that point. Um, so there was a lot, lot to deal with here. Um, but, but I saw it as, as my job to help him tell his story because it was so important. And, and the major feeling I had, the major emotion I had was just astonishment every single day at, at what he was going through. And, and, and this very early on, this strong understanding that what we needed to do was 
honor and reveal the level of grief that people were experiencing and make sure that people understood how difficult this was for the medical professionals, for the hospital staff, and for the families of the victims. Um, and, and that we, I, I needed to focus on that and making sure that those stories came through clearly and unencumbered, um, you know, without politics, without, without ideology, um, without any of those debates, just make sure that the stories came through. One of the things that um, is so beautiful about that is is the stories, I think, are what resonate with people. And even in the past four weeks, right, as we've been, um, well, more than that, I suppose, six weeks, as we've been dealing with the Delta surge, um, you've seen um, not just stories um, in, in the headlines that are horrible and tragic because younger and younger people are becoming sick in this current wave. Um, but you're also seeing stories of people reacting to those stories and going out and getting their vaccines and maybe they were hesitant or busy. Um, and so I feel like at this point in the pandemic, people are responding in a variety of ways um, to the current, like, you know, what, what we're dealing with at this point in the pandemic, which is different than what we were dealing with even um, in the period that you were documenting. Um, doctor, in terms of the vaccine hesitancy, how much do you come across people who are sick with COVID and are still hesitant? And what are the reasons at that point that they are listing out? <laughs> because I, that's where I get lost. That's where they lose me. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're sick or you know somebody personally who's sick, it seems to me you would be open to the vaccine, more open to the vaccine at that point, right? Yeah, you, you and me both. It it <laughs> it completely confuses me. And here's the irony: guy comes in, COVID positive, little short of breath, and you say to him, "You you, you know you you got to, as part of the, the the history." You say, "Did you get the vaccine?" And more often than not, it fascinates me that the answer is said in such a way as, "Are you kidding me?" Or, "Of course not." And like, how could you even ask me that? It, and that I can't, I just can't figure out. I come home every shift and I say, what am I missing here? And if you, if you notice in the book, it's, there is no politics in this book. I am mm-hmm. not a political guy, but there, it, it cannot be medical reasons. You, you cannot tell me that if uh, the average 30 year old has done a deep dive into the microbiology, immunology of, of vaccines and knows anything about the technology, it, it, it cannot be science-based. And it just befuddles me that they look me in the eye and they say, really? Like, why would you even ask me that? So I don't have an answer to that. And I don't know how to change that. Oh, man. We don't, none of us do, right? I feel like I'm asking everybody that question this week because I, I've been, my dad is a biologist. Um, and so we have that conversation at least once a day. We're like, what is wrong with these people? I don't understand. I mean, there will be like crazy uh, clips of folks on the local news here in Virginia where there was a woman one day on the news where she was in the plastic sort of bubble covering uh, in the hospital, sick with COVID. She was like, I just don't know enough about this vaccine. I don't think I'll be able to, um, you know, take it. I'm still very concerned. And I was just like, I, that, I can't, I don't get that. I can't process that. <laughs> um, 
I don't understand that thinking, but that that's shared by so many. Um, we only have a few more minutes. Um, so Dan, I'll ask um, you the last question. Who do you hope reads this book? Um, I feel like a lot of Americans need to read this book, uh, especially the ones that are going and yelling at nurses and doctors at school board meetings. Maybe they should read read it first. But who who do you hope really picks this up and perhaps processes a new way to look at what we've what we're living through and what we've lived through? Yeah, you know, I think like, there's there is it's clearly hard to talk about COVID. People are tired of it. It's become politicized. The you know the debates have have moved into the whole vaccine question, and all those debates are legitimate. I I, I respect people's opinions about it, but but this book is really about humanity, about how we treat each other, about how we take care of each other, and so I think that anybody who wants to understand how we did take care of each other, because there was real heroism at that and real heroic heroics at in those days. And, and who really wants to understand the humanity of COVID, um, the human side of it, because that's been lost. And so I think we all need to understand the human, the human side of COVID um, and, and to retrieve that, because I think that is a way for us to get back together. Um, somehow we've become very divided and, and, I think this, I mean, it's saying a lot. It's, it's, it's bragging, you know, I think this can bring us back together. And I, I hope that people who are interested in that will pick up this book. I hope so too. Um, and I feel like maybe in the middle of the trauma, they may not, but I hope at some point um, they do pick it up because we all need to process what we've gone through. We're all, it's the weird thing in life where, you know, None of us have had the same COVID experience. I think that book is proof of that, right? Um, but we have all gone through this co- this universal thing. Um, and we're all in our own individual circumstances in this larger thing that's happening. That's That nobody alive, except for that one lady that drank a lot of gin, um, was here for. Nobody was here for the other pandemic. There's only that one lady who drank gin. I don't know if that was the, the reason why she's uh, 100 and... I don't even know how old, uh, but it seems to me that might be what we shall be trying. Um, Dan Koplin and Dr. Robert Meyer, I really appreciate you guys for being here. This is an incredible project that you both have put together in documenting this moment. And I think um, we all owe you um, a huge debt of gratitude, not just for this book, but also um, doctor for taking care of all of these uh, folks who have been sick with COVID in this year. So thank you both for being here. Um, and please stay safe. Uh, because this this pandemic, as we all know, is, is not over. No, it is not. And thank you so much for having us this morning. Thank Thanks. You. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Signal Boost podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with more news.